I want to uh, invite you to open your Bibles back up to Psalm 2, and let's, let's study Psalm 2. Last week I introduced the concept that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are a, like a set of glasses or lenses, if you will, two lenses through which we can learn to interpret Scripture. Uh, interpret Scripture, and certainly all of the Psalms can be viewed through these two lenses. And the general themes of these two lenses, these Psalms, number one last week, of course, was the righteous man or the blessed man, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And that man, as we learned last week, is, it's meant to be a literal man. It is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, as we look at Psalm 2, we're reflecting back on Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 set up the contrast of two ways in our world, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, two ways. There are really only two ways, and everybody falls into one of those two categories. We are either righteous or we are wicked. We don't like to think of ourselves as wicked. I don't like to think of myself as wicked, uh, but the reality is... Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. Now, to be righteous, of course, uh, is, is uh, a lifelong pursuit. Righteousness, or a synonym for holiness, is truly a lifelong pursuit. As long as we have breath to praise the Lord and to pursue holiness. Uh, as the book of Hebrews says, without which no one shall see the Lord. So there is a measure of holiness and righteousness that we desire to attain. And that's why we're in church. That's why we pray. That's why we study the word. That's, that's why we worship God so that we can draw closer and closer to him to live life in his spirit. So that's Psalm 1, the way of the righteous man in contrast and it's a, the, to the wicked. And, and the righteous life really truly does bear fruit. Sometimes we don't, we don't see the fruit. Sometimes we wonder if we're ever bearing fruit. But remember, a fruit tree takes a long time to bear. We go through seasons of growing and maturing before the fruit is even there. Uh, I, I love that thought. I've never been very successful. I, I've never, have you ever planted a fruit tree? Yeah. Have you? <laughs> Uh, I've never planted a fruit tree. Sharing, but again, some people have it, some people don't, I don't. You don't either. Well, I don't tend to have that green thumb either, and not the best nurturer of plants, that's for yeah. sure. But there are, there are uniqueness to each one, each fruit tree. I didn't think of a fruit tree. It wouldn't have to be a fruit tree. But they, the fruit trees truly do. Each one, it takes a different amount of time. Some take a certain number of years before they'll ever bear fruit. Uh, others a different amount of time. And then the, in reality, some of them just never bear fruit. What a, what a metaphor for life. Some of us never bear fruit. Jesus tells us what happens to dry, dead limbs that never bear fruit. In John chapter 15, and it's not a pretty picture. Uh, they are gathered up eventually. God is merciful. We, we have our whole lives to repent. God is merciful, but... Scripture reminds us today is the day of salvation. So if you hear his voice, hearken unto him. We cannot presume 
The grace of God will be there tomorrow, for we may not have breath tomorrow. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to pursue the righteous life, as Psalm 1 says. Now, so look at Psalm 2 with me. If Psalm 1 is setting up the moral view of Scripture and its contrast to the wicked, Psalm 2 is setting up a kingdom view of Scripture. So regardless almost of any psalm that you're reading, you're going to learn to read and pray the Scripture as such that when you, when you hear uh, the voice crying out to the Lord, whether it's about their own personal life, the person's personal life, or whether it's about the world situation, the kingdom situation. We want to learn to identify who it is that's speaking. How is that Christ? How is that? And this is a perfect example of that. So when we look at Psalm 2, it opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do they do that? Well, that's, I, I made a comment in a, in a little earlier, uh, little live video I did to kind of encourage people to listen tonight and, and to, to be in prayer with this. And that was this. This is the situation of our world right now. This is the situation of the world in every generation. But some pockets of time see it more uh, vividly. And we are seeing truly, very vividly in our world today, the nations waging against God and his anointed. We see this happening in many, many different ways, especially as we've seen in the last half century, the rapid decline of the church or the kingdom of God as seen through the church. Okay, now we see that rapid decline and we see... What, what appears in our world to be just a rapid advance of immorality, just an incredible advancement of immorality and, and the wicked way, the, the very contrast of Psalm 1 is being lived out. And unfortunately, what we see with our glasses is it seems like the wicked is winning. Thankfully, if we remember back to the story of Elijah, Elijah thought the whole world was lost. He thought the whole nation was lost. And God said, Elijah, I have 7,000 that have still not bowed their knee to Baal. So we don't know what the remnant is, but there is clearly a battle being fought for our souls and for the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of this world. So the conflict rages on. It definitely rages on. And he clearly points out to us in verse 2 that the conflict is against the Lord and his anointed. In other words, it's against God and against Jesus Christ. Clearly, the anointed is the one from Psalm 1. Now, verse 3 is kind of like an answer. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do you think it means that the psalmist here is feeling bonds or cords are like a rope, you know, bound up, that's something... What do you think that's metaphorical for here? What do you think the psalmist is feeling? I sometimes ask questions. They're not meant to be rhetorical. You're more than welcome to, to shout out an answer or somebody can type in an, a, a, an answer on Facebook there. Um, don't feel like you have to, but I, I want you to dialogue if, if you want to. So never feel bad about jumping into the conversation. First, when I was reading it, he was thinking that it was God breaking the bonds, but it says the ruler 
rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let's break their bonds. They're trying to break us up. Yeah. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from among us. That's a scary phrase. Their cords. So the world and its leadership has recognized that the gospel or the kingdom of God has accomplished some gathering, some cords to tie in the family of God, if you will, or the people of God. And in that, clearly there's the wicked uh, from Psalm 1 have been drawn up into that and see themselves as maybe a part of that. But they want to break it. They want to break their cords from among us. They want to see, uh, they want to see the church fail, quite frankly. In, in the world in which we live right now, we are seeing rapid uh, advancement against the abilities of the church. Now, we don't feel it as much here in Kansas. Um, we're, we have some pretty, uh, still some pretty conservative areas in Kansas, but boy, they, when I hear about the battle of churches being asked not to be able to meet no matter what. Now, granted, some of those churches are not being perhaps very good uh, stewards by not following some precautions and not taking some uh, careful things to keep people safe, and I don't recommend that for a church. I mean, we want to be good stewards. We're trying to do that here in, in Udall UMC. We're, we're, yes, we're having services, but we're practicing social distance and trying to be as, uh, as good a stewards as we can of everybody's health and our concerns. Some are not, but nevertheless, we, we really are struggling. And this is not a new struggle. This has been playing out all throughout time. What's challenging for us in America today, what's challenging for us in these United States is that we have had unprecedented freedom as a people of God. Never before in the history of the world have the people of God been so free. In Christ's day, they weren't free. They were subjects of the Roman Empire. Rome tolerated their religious existence. Finally, of course, with the conversion of the Roman Empire, there was a a, an element of freedom that was brought to Christianity and it began to sweep throughout the, the world. But even throughout the time, if you follow the history of Christianity, it has always had pockets and sometimes more than pockets, deep pockets and great elements of, uh, oh, the word just escaped me, of um, persecution. Yes, persecution. Not freedom, but persecuted. So that's challenging uh, to us. We, we don't know that. We don't live that. Today, right now, um, I'm in contact with some people in the East, what we would call the Middle East, that, uh, that have no freedom. They're Christians, and they, have, they are not only do not have any freedom, they are being exterminated. There's, there's a systematic plan to wipe those Christian elements of those nations off the face of the earth. That's a scary thing. So we see this happening even in our own day. And so we ask, what's the answer? How does this all play out? Uh, the powers of earth uh, seem to have so much power. These worldly bodies seem to have so much power. But if we read on in our psalm tonight, it says in verse four, I, I, I just kind of chuckle when I read this. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I, I, that brings a smile to my face because... As a, as a man of faith, as people of faith, we know, we know the end of the story. 
The end of the story is the Hallelujah Chorus. The kingdoms of this world have become what? The kingdoms of our Christ. But it's that becoming that is, can be pretty uncomfortable. In fact, can bring martyrdom, can bring great violence. So that, that becoming is not just this beautiful freedom. So I think there's a message to us when we read Psalm 2. And anytime we read about the struggles as we go through this book of Psalm, when we get into Psalm 3 next week, we're going to literally hear the psalmist crying out to God to save him because the psalmist is feeling so persecuted. And we're going to look and hear the voice of Christ in that. But in this moment, what we hear is that the, the, the promise that God will have the final word. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we're hearing here, whose voice? Whose voice are you hearing? God the Father. That's right, we're hearing the voice of God the Father. And he's saying, I'm going to, he not only says, I, I've set my king up on my holy hill, that we will be victorious. He says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. I, I want to stop there for just a second and let's pause because this idea of wrath and fury come up a lot in the book of Psalms. It comes up a lot in scripture, especially in the Old Testament. How do we understand? We need to stop and say, how do we understand this idea of God's wrath and his fury as we read prayerfully, thoughtfully, theologically through the book of Psalms? This is a, this is a point of consternation for many people. This is a point of trouble for many people because many people have trouble reconciling the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. Many people have trouble with that. There is only one God, correct? Only one God. And that God is eternally manifested in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament days, and at the time of this writing, all that was truly, I won't say visibly, of course, because God is spirit, but was, was manifested to humanity's knowledge was God the Father. So they saw God, not, and they didn't see him as a father. In fact, the word for God being father is only used twice in all of the Old Testament. That's the term of the New Testament. Jesus comes to show us God as our father. But in the Old Testament, he was known by his many names, El Shaddai, for instance, which means the almighty, God almighty. Um, so there's El Gabor, the most, you know, the, 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 the holy one. Uh, there's so many names uh, for the names of God, and they're beautiful studies, and God reveals himself through those names. These are all attributes of God, and there are the others that are softer and more gentle, like uh, our healer, Je you know, Jehovah, or the Lord, Yahweh, Rophe, our healer, Roi, our shepherd. There's so many beautiful things, but what do we do with the ones that talk about his wrath? in light of who Jesus shows us God is. We have to stop and think about that just a little bit. 
here's how, here's how I like to reconcile it and, and think about it. God was in the process of revealing himself to humanity who had, he, his first revelation to humanity was beautiful love and fellowship. Adam and Eve were created in his image. Beautiful love and fellowship. Because of the freedom that he gave to humanity and their falling into sin, that fellowship's broken. And so as they begin to live and populate the earth, they're living in a broken earth, they're living broken lives, and we see the world begin, because it, doesn't, it no longer sees God in his beauty, in his holiness, in his gentleness, in his sweetness. So it, be, it begins to create gods in their own image. Humanity begins to create. So that's where paganism comes from. Humanity, as it populated the earth, the further and further it moves away from the beginning, begins to set up gods in their own image. And in the sinfulness of humanity, humans begin to live out the stories of their gods. So, I believe when God is revealing himself in the Old Testament to people like he is in the Psalms, and we hear about his wrath, God is dealing with what he has. And what he has is a people that have, that have now been on the earth for thousands of years, and they, he's had a people of God. If this is the period maybe in the time of David, then you're probably looking at maybe 1,500 years back to Abraham. And I'm not a scholar on that. I could be off, but generally speaking. So you're dealing with people that have seen war after war in the name of God and God's conquering and doing horrible things. And, and so God begins by bringing together his own people and making promises to them and, and then revealing himself to them. But for them to fulfill the promises, they have to go out and conquer in that God's name, in, in their God's name, in our God's name. And so as they go out and conquer, they become the powers of God, and they live out those powers. And uh, so it's not that God is wrathful because he hates. Hate is a human emotion. We, we, can, we can honestly say, you know, the scripture tells us the Lord hates sin. What is scripture trying to do when it tells us about that kind of hatred and those kind of emotions about God? It's trying to reveal to humans who could never understand God Almighty. We can never understand. We're, we're the creator. He's the creator. But he's trying to reveal attributes in ways that we can understand. And loving fathers must have loving wrath. That's an incongruent thought. We have to have, we can look to our own parenting. And the parent that doesn't have a loving wrath for their child's uh, disobeying is not truly loving their child. They are spoiling their child. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a deep subject and it's hard to grab, but, but what I want us to do is I want us to be able to look at God as we learn through the book of Psalms to say, what does his wrath mean? What's actually his love? So wrath is really God's love and holiness. Is that, that's, is that an, blow your mind? That blows my mind when I think about it. Get angry because they're not obeying. Yeah. And you, maybe if they're doing something totally wrong, you've got to bring them back in the fold and yeah. what you got to do. So, yeah, they think we're just terrible, but. 
like we think he is sometimes. <laughs> and, and we just have to realize that God always has our best at heart. So I believe it's more of God's, I believe his wrath is really kind of lived out in his, what I want to call, it's, it's not a, probably a sound theological term, but his permissiveness. He allows things to happen in our world that feel like God did them to us. But he didn't do it. God would never hurt us. God would never hurt anyone. God's lovingly calling all people to himself. But we, in our own sinfulness and in our own pride and selfishness, hurt one another and then blame it on God. So it's a very challenging, deep thoughts. Very, very deep thoughts. Um, but it's important for us to understand the voice of the Father. So the answer that the Father has is the answer is to show his anointed one. Is to show his anointed one as the king. The king that he sets on his holy hill, which is Jerusalem, of course. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. And he says, here we now hear the voices of the ancient creeds calling out to us. Listen to the words. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a theological basis for our understanding that Jesus Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, as we say in our creeds. Begotten, not made, but one in being with the Father. And then he simply says, you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, this sounds so violent. Jesus Christ isn't violent. But when you set love, pure, holy love, into a situation that has complete chaos, it's going to feel, it's going to have an element that's going to feel like wrath and going to feel like anger. So the realities are in the end of all days, at the end of all time, when when. When scripture is finally fulfilled, the commencement of the ages, it is going to feel like there is great battle. And the Lord is the victor and the Lord is the anointed. Uh, and he will, but, but Jesus doesn't have to. One word from his mouth would vanquish all foes. So we're always to remember that he's an almighty God. But we're, we're seeing the struggle revealed and lived out in, in, in ways that human beings can understand. So he, he says in verses 10 through 12, he kind of brings it. Uh, we're seeing kind of a Christological interpretation of the scripture here. Christ is the king of kings. Christ is the holy one. Christ is the victor. Christ is, becomes the ruler of the world because God has given it all to him. And so we see him come into our world and we see him born as a baby, raised as a child, growing to a man, doing all kinds of beautiful ministry, and then dying on a cross, but being victorious in, over that cross and over that death through his resurrection. And what we're waiting on is the consummation. We know that Christ is victorious. We know that he reigns over the world, but he doesn't reign over the world fully. He says, Satan has a time. Satan has a time in this world where it feels like he reigns. That's this battle. That's the consternation that we feel. When we get into Psalm 3 next week and we hear the psalmist crying out to be saved from his enemies, who are those enemies? That We're going to look at that uh, next week. So, so the psalm closes with some beautiful words. Words. It says, Therefore, king, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. So what, what is God doing? The Father is actually literally inviting. It's his mercy. He's inviting people that are wicked to come to him, to realize uh, who his son is. Kiss the son, it says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we see in the closing words this idea. There are, there are, there are really three. Let me look at my notes. I want to be sure you get this tonight. There are three Christological themes that are rising here now as we look at these first few Psalms. One is that Christ, you're going to hear it played out all through the Psalms, that Christ is the new Adam. He is the new human, the new son, the new man who is perfect as the old one wasn't. He is also the new David. We are going to hear, we, we hear uh we hear, we hear God talking about kings and we know that, that David is the great king of the Old Testament and Christ reigns from David's lineage. And so David becomes the, I mean, Christ becomes the new David as we read out the Psalms who could reign royally and beautifully and truly uh, as God's anointed where David in his humanity fell and couldn't. And then the third theme is we see, and we'll see this next week very powerfully, this idea of the just man the, the, the man from Psalm 1. Christ is the just man. Uh, so three big themes that we want to remember as we kind of work through these. The first five Psalms, as I mentioned last week, we won't actually go through every Psalm, 150. We'll begin to, as time goes by, we'll pick out the more important ones, not the importance, not a good word there, but the ones that maybe are more understandable to us and we can, there are others that kind of flow alike with them. But the first five are kind of like their own Pentateuch. I mean, it's just kind of like the, the, you know, the first five books of the Bible in, in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the first five Psalms. They really set a pace for the whole story of God. So um, remember, as you consider uh, the Psalms, they're always teaching us about the Lord's anointed, they're always teaching us about the kingdom of God. And what we read in Psalm 2 is that the kingdom of God in this dispensation is in a battle. We know who the victor is going to be, but the battle rages on. And we see that battle raging on now. And it is very important for the church to rise up in this time. Very important for the church to rise up in this time rediscover what it means to be the church and the body of Christ and rediscover what it means to have the truth of God's word and to stand on that truth. And that's what we want to be about. Um, so thank you for your time. Any questions? Last minute thought? Nothing? Okay. Well, let's pray as we close tonight. Father in heaven, we offer you our time of study. We offer you our time of prayer. We ask your blessing and your anointing that we, would, that we would walk from this place tonight out into uh, the rest of our lives, having known you've heard our prayers, to give us a safe night and to give us enlightenment as we study and read, especially uh, the book of Psalms in your word. Let them become our prayers, even as they were Christ's prayers. Uh, prophetically, 
lived out through David and the others. So thank you, Father, for your word tonight to us and for this time together. May your blessing be upon us now through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.